Uh, thanks to the praise team and to Deborah and Lynn, Matthew and Landon for leading us in worship this morning. I trust that you've had a good week, that the Lord has blessed you. Listening to a message by Dr. Vance Havner this morning while I was finishing up notes. And <laughs> he went home to be with the Lord about 30 years ago, actually about 40 years ago now. He said, likewise, just something I want to read before we start here this morning. Likewise, I read the speeches of churchmen in our religious conclaves trying to arouse the brethren about evangelism or social action. Church audience reaction is usually, I move we accept this as information and be dismissed. And he says it will take more than highly promoted conventions with parade of celebrities to meet our problem of a sick church trying to minister to a sick world. If God ever rends the heavens and comes down again in real revival, he will begin in some obscure country church where a little band of Nobody's in holy desperation praise like Jehoshaphat. We know not what to do, but our eyes are on thee. What a marvelous understanding of how little we are before a sovereign God. And for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet this morning, we do welcome you with our congregation. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We want you to follow along. There's a reason for that. It helps your reading. It also helps your listening. And so if you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles, and this particular passage is on page 1015. So please bear that in mind. We've been for a number of weeks now, looking at a passage, uh, a fairly lengthy passage that Peter, where Peter is writing about submission and the fact that we um, are to live our lives as testimonies before the evildoers. And he uses that word quite often in his epistles. We'll hear it again later on in First Peter and also in Second Peter. So he begins by writing about submission to government. And then he talks about God's will. And so we've been looking at God's will. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, as the word again, and for the praise of those who do good. Well, this is the will of God, two things, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's the first thing. And secondly, it's the will of God that you're free. And it's also the will of God that you don't use your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And then he closes out at least this passage with four admonitions. Honor all, bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, for believers, teach us about your will this morning. 
and teach us to be obedient to what is contained in the word. The sinners, teach them that it is the will of God that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who alone can save and who alone will save. In whose name we pray, amen. So last Sunday, we were blessed to have Brother Dave Langley with us, Gideon speaker, and so I uh, went through a, a fairly lengthy introduction. <laughs> Almost all my introductions are lengthy, but this one, of course, we looked at some Old Testament and New Testament scriptures regarding free, being free in Christ, and the freedom that we have in Christ. And I opened with Genesis chapter 2 in verses 16 through 18. All times God is thought of as a cosmic killjoy, that he doesn't want us to have any fun, that they're just rules and regulations, and we're to get in line or else. Well, in the very beginning book, the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you will freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you will not eat of it, for in the day that you do eat of it, you will surely die. Now we've been looking at the will of God, or actually two wills of God, the will of decree. We haven't spent a great deal of time on it. I covered that in depth and detail when we were in the book of Romans. But this particular command is a will of decree. Now what we've been covering and what Peter is writing about here in these passages is the will of God's command. The will of decree, the will of, de of God's decree never changes. And try as we might, we just sang about God's sovereign overall, try as we might, we're not going to change God's will of decree. It's written. But God's will of command, we quite often disobey. In fact, we disobey it more often than not. And so we've been looking at what the Lord would want us to do with this particular passage here in First Peter, and we're going to close out this morning in Romans chapter 12. First slide, if you would, brother. We closed last Sunday morning. I quoted for you First Corinthians chapter 7. It's on your overhead. Were you called while a slave? And we covered this when we were in 1 Corinthians many, many years ago. Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Now, we'll go into more detail when we get to verses 18 in 1 Peter 2, talking about this. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he is called while free is Christ's slave. So our freedom in Christ means that we're bond servants. We've sold our souls to him. We're not our own, Paul would write to the church at Corinth. We're to glorify God in our living and in our spirit. Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So yes, there's freedom in Christ, but there's also tremendous responsibility. Now, Wayne Grudem, 
a tremendous man of God who's written a, a, a number of books and his systematic theology I would highly recommend. He defines freedom this way. True freedom is consistent with obedience to God's will. Now, the world never thinks that way. When the world speaks of true freedom, they speak of libertarianism, the ability to do just anything I want. And I would submit to you that you can do just about anything you want except not sin. So you're enslaved to sin. I'm enslaved to sin without Jesus Christ. So we're not truly free. He goes on. The kind of freedom is not specified. But certainly the great freedoms of the Christian life are freedom from the impossible obligation to earn merit before God by perfect obedience. Now obviously, in God's will of command, because of His nature, He understands that we're are not going to be like Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons that we need Christ. Christ was perfectly obedient in every area, facet, and movement and thought of his life. Think about that for a moment. Every thought of Christ's life was in perfect obedience. We are not like that. So, in Galatians 5, 1 through 14, I'm not going to go and read that, but it speaks about, in fact, we just quoted the very first verse here, we just read it, that we are freedom from the guilt of trying to live the law. Now, don't misunderstand what's said here, because the moral implications of God's law have never been removed. Ceremonial implications, yes. Moral implications, no. In Galatians 3, tremendous little epistle, the freedom from the ruling power of sin, the freedom from guilt, uh, excuse me, in Galatians 3, the freedom of uh, perfect obedience or, or to earn merit before God, perfect obedience, Galatians 5, and then freedom from the ruling power of sin. In Romans chapter 6, and these verses that are listed there for you, which we covered in detail when we were in the epistle to the church at Rome. Now, the word free, and the word that you see here as free, is found 23 times in the New Testament. Uh, it can mean a number of things. The three uses of the word is one that is not a slave. So this goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, if you called while free, that's one that's not a slave. Secondly, it's one that's not bound by obligation. We are freed by the liberty that we have in Christ. That's the word that's used there in Galatians 5. And so now we are looking here in verse uh, uh, 16, the beginning of verse 16. He talks about free from the ethical yoke of the Mosaic law. So these are the types of freedom that are spoken of in the New Testament. Next slide, if you would. So he talks about liberty as well. And if we're free, then we have a certain liberty. And here is the word liberty is interesting because it, it means more 
than freedom. It carries with it the idea that we have the freedom to do or omit things that are unrelated to salvation. We have obligations and responsibilities as born-again believers, but liberty in the use in the New Testament means that if we follow God's will of command, then things that we have freedom, we can make choices that really don't relate to salvation because we are in God's will. I'll explain this. Now, Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. He says, do not use your liberty to sin by commission or omission. More often than not, we think of our sins as those that we commit, things that we do, things that we struggle with. But then when it comes to things that we don't do, we pretty much sweep them under the rug. But literally, Paul was writing in Galatians 5.1, don't use your liberty to sin by either commission of sins or omission of sins in areas that are affected in your salvation. They're going to impact how you live if you sin this way. Peter is saying something similar in this particular passage. Now, why are we to take the freedom that we have in Christ and understand the responsibility that we have to him. Well, Peter writes about that in chapter 1, in verses 18 and 19. Look back at that passage, if you would. He says, we do this because we know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now, we talked about this again when we were in First Peter. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So why do we live free in him with the responsibility of obeying him? Because we're not our own. Now that's hard for Americans. It's hard for any person. But it's especially hard for Americans. Yes, I am. I'm my own man. I am my own woman. Well, as a believer, you're not. I'm not. There are certain choices that we make that impact and effect our salvation. In 2 Peter, he says, while they promised them liberty, okay, Christ purchased our freedom from sin's bondage, and then Peter will write in the second epistle, while they promised them liberty, talking about false, uh, false teachers, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Sins bind us. We become addicted to certain sins. And they don't free us. They constrict us. Now, Peter uses the word in verse 16. He talks about, it's the will of God that you be free, yet not using liberty. That's the word that's used there. As a cloak for vice. 
So the word cloak there is a covering, a veil. It is very similar to the word that was used for the robe that was placed on Christ after he was beaten just before his death. Something that would cover up a heinous act of violence against another. And so Peter says, uh, it can also be you know, a pretext, but Peter says, don't veil your intentions. And we all have intentions. I talk about this almost every Sunday. We have ulterior motives. We all have them. And so Peter says, don't veil your intentions to continue in your sin. Don't veil your intentions to continue in your self-indulgence. A believer is one that is not to be driven by some type of indulgence in an addiction to a certain area of sin. Now, we all struggle with this. True freedom in Christ from this particular verse means that we are bondservants. And that's one who gives himself up wholly to another's will. A bondservant and a slave could be the same, but a bondservant could be different. A bondservant could be one that signs a contract with someone that owns them in order that they further their skill sets, that they further their education, or that they take care of their monetary needs. So as a bondservant of Christ, that's what he says, or cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, we have sold our souls to him because he sold his soul for us. What tremendous truth is contained in this passage. Next slide. <clears throat> so, Peter literally says, our freedom in Jesus is never to be used to cover ungodly license. Now, this, is, this has always been antithetical to the Christian life, but it's even more palpable today because many, many people, and we'll talk about it here in just a moment, but many, many people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and rarely, if ever, darken the doors of a church, rarely, if ever, are involved in the ordinances of the church, the receipt of the Lord's Supper, the celebration of Christian baptism, and so forth, rarely, if ever, are exposed to the common graces of the Word of God or prayer or giving. Yet, I'm free. Well, the question then is, are you a bond servant? To say we're free in Christ and we're going to live apart from the law of man, which Peter is stressing here in this passage, or the law of God is merely a mask, a veil, a cloak of our freedom that covers our evil. And he talks about evil and he talks about vice here in this particular passage. Kakia, it's a baseness. It carries with a desire to injure. Depravity, when we talk about being driven sometimes by ulterior motives, often there is a desire behind that to injure 
the other person. What did our president, 15th president say? With malice toward none. It's the word from which ma malice comes. So if we choose a libertarian lifestyle, it often masks the int uh, our intent to deprive. And through this depravity, it injures others. And it ignores God's will. So you've heard me use the word antinomian as big word, 25-cent word. But it's not all that difficult to understand. It means against the law. It's one who holds that under the gospel of grace, Peter's talked about the gospel of grace quite a bit here. It's found all over the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. One who holds that under the gospel of grace, the moral law is of no use. It had, we have no obligation to it because faith alone is necessary to salvation. Now, that's a true statement. Faith alone is necessary to salvation. But this is a faith that is not alone. It carries with it the idea of a convictionless Christianity. And let's face it, there are a number of people that are Christians that don't like to be convicted. There are a number of people that claim to be born again that can point out readily the sin in others, because that's what Jesus said, remove the beam that is in your eye before you remove the splinter that is in yours, or theirs, rather. It sees repentance as a single event. Don't need to repent anymore. We don't need to confess and right ourselves before God. We are right in Christ. Yes, we are. But you miss the intent of the, of the entire New Testament. Read Romans chapter 7. If you think you never need to repent again, read Romans 7. And see what Paul wrote. Sermons. We don't want sermons that expose our sins. We don't, we don't want sermons too long. Shortness of the sermon... Hey, let's take a vote, as Vance Habner said. Let's just information. Yeah, I preachers spend a lot of time. Oh, who cares? Just information. We don't want sermons that expose our sin, that allow us to admit our faults and confess them freely. Now, there's the word again, freely. So the Christian life is more about, some people think, about ignoring sin resting on a foggy concept of grace. We would call this free grace, but free grace is not cheap. I would call it cheap grace. Os Guinness wrote, freedom is often the greatest enemy of freedom. For freedom pursued in the wrong way all too often ends in serfdom rather than liberty. He's written a great book about this, and he talks about the differences between the American Revolution and primarily the French Revolution, where people were only interested in 
their personal freedom, not in a national freedom. And so that's turned, and that's where we are today in this country. People are far more concerned about their personal freedom than national freedom. When we read the Bible, we consider that we are far more interested in our personal freedom than the universal freedom that we have in Christ in the church of the living God. Next slide. Two things impact our freedom in Christ. And the first thing is, we've talked about it, our relationship with God is destroyed by our sin. And any time we as believers claim to live for Christ and indulge in sin, it impacts our relationship. It doesn't remove... The justification that we have in Jesus Christ, but it does impact our sanctification. And secondly, that or as part of that, our relationship is restored only by faith in Christ. And secondly, since relationship is destroyed by sin, the image of God that all of us have. Verse 17, he talks about four categories of individuals of peoples. Therefore, he says, honor all people. So because our relationship is destroyed by sin, the image of God can also be destroyed, and all we need to do is go to Romans chapter 1, where he talks about loving an image, loving the, cre the creature more than the creator. So the impact is intense. When God created, we read this morning from Genesis chapter 2. The fall had not occurred in Genesis 2. When God created, he made a distinction between himself and you and I. These things, he said, remember what he told Adam? I command you. You don't get a vote. This is not a democracy, Adam. You don't get a vote. Everything I've made, do you realize that Adam and Eve did not have to toil over the food that they ate? Everything I made, I prepared for you. It's yours. It's a gift of mine to you. And they didn't take it seriously. So do we toil over what we eat today? Yes. Because Adam and Eve didn't take the freedom God gave them seriously. And you and I don't take that freedom seriously. So we toil. And we labor. And we strive. And we age. And what God decreed, if you break this one command, you will die. And every person ever to walk this globe has died. God's will of decree. We are made in God's image, and no other creature 
has this distinction. In verse 17, he says, Honor all peoples, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Four things here. You can call this citizenship theology. How are we to live in a sinful world? We are to honor all people. We are to love the brotherhood. We are to fear God. And we're to honor the king, honor the emperor, some translations say. Four applications here. We're to honor all men, or the word that's used there means mankind. All humanity, I heard me talk about this, we've, we've looked at it a number of times over the past few months. We have the image of God. All, whether we agree with them or not, deserve honor universally. And that applies to those that may be listening or watching via the internet that don't agree with what I say. You are to honor me, and you are to honor those that claim Jesus as Savior. It's not a one-way street. All deserve honor universally. The word there means to revere, means to venerate, means to praise. Every strata of society because of the image of God. We don't agree with them all, obviously, because it follows we are to follow the word of God. But we are to honor them because they are in the Imago Dei. Secondly, he says love the brotherhood. Literally, this is the band of brothers from Henry, uh, from Shakespeare, Shakespeare's uh, Henry V play, I believe. The band of brothers. You love other believers. And we're, we're lovable, aren't we? All God's people said. <laughs> aren't we lovable? I think you're lovable. You think I'm lovable, all God's people said. <laughs> That's what it means. Oh, preacher, don't pray. Where are you going, preacher? I'm going right where Peter wrote. We're to love other believers. Now, sometimes we're not very lovable. But Christ made us lovable. Do you realize that when we slander a brother and sister in Christ that you are slandering the person of Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Love other believers. Next slide. He says we're to fear God. We're to honor the king or the emperor. Solomon in Proverbs wrote this. My son, fear the Lord and the king. That's where Peter got it. So Peter apparently had 
scrolls with him from the Old Testament. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? Those that are given to change, that are driven by every wind of doctrine. You've got to know doctrine to know when people are teaching it falsely. If you don't know it, you're not going to know that you're being deceived. Peter talks about that in, first, in 2 Peter 2. You have to know it. And so he applies the principle of believers here in this citizenship theology. So the entire passage here begins in verse 13, runs through verse 7 of chapter 3. He's talking about lining up under others. Now this is difficult. It is especially difficult for people that are born and reared in a democratic republic. How do we follow the will of God? Well, Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 12. Transitioning from those marvelous 11 chapters of, of uh, teaching on doctrine to the application of the doctrine. If you don't know the doctrine, you don't know how to live. Uh, you may live morally, but you don't know how to live scripturally. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do you worship God? By the mercies of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice. You become a bondservant. That's what Peter said. Paul would say it also in 1 Corinthians. It's your spiritual worship. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, Peter is doing a, a very similar thing. He's talking to, he calls these individuals pilgrims. He calls them aliens. He calls them strangers because they're not to be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern, what a marvelous passage, what is the will of God. How do we follow the will of God? That you may discern what is the will of God. Oh, finding the will of God is so hard. No, it's not. We more often than not miss the will of God because we're more concerned with looking for some direct revelation from him, some, some type of, uh, of ethereal movement, hugging a tree or kissing a rock rather than reading the word. In order to be transformed, sinners' minds, Paul says, need renewal. Literally, which is a complete change for the better effected by the Holy Spirit, brought about by the work of the Spirit of God. Minds need changing. It follows then that for believers to submit to God's will requires a mind-altering event. Now, this is not marijuana, grass or pot or whatever. This is not cocaine. This is not heroin. This is the spirit of the living God, which comes from 
the book of the living God. Next slide. So, Romans 12, verse 1, he talks about worship. Paul says we're to use our renewed minds because renewed minds bring about renewed hearts. They go together, by the way. You're not going to have a renewed heart and not have a renewed mind. Vice versa. That applies as well. Our bodies, likewise, how we take care of our bodies, express to others the worship of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter has talked about it here. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. How? With renewed minds, renewed hearts, and bodies. And in verse 2, Paul says, how do we turn our minds, our hearts, and our bodies into worship? He says we have to be transformed. And that's not only how we look externally. It has to do with our emotions. And our emotions are to be controlled by our mental acuity. Not by our hearts, our mental ability. Now, all of you are smart, men and women, boys and girls, young, young men and women, all of you. But your emotion, and we'll talk about this as we go through this, your emotion comes or the renewed mind governs your emotions. That's what Paul is saying. So the renewed mind affects submission. And in, to the church at Colossae, he said, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, okay, coming face to face with what God wants us to know after the image of its creator. That's why it's given to us. The will of God is not being hid God wants you to know what it is. He says it's perfect and acceptable to him if we follow that. Now, Paul here writes about, in Romans 12, he's writing about the will of command, just as Peter is here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And how do we know that? Well, the reason that we know he's writing about the will of command is that God does not, we just sang a, a great little chorus, but God does not intend for us to know most of his sovereign will. Now, I know we want to know how many crowns are going to be on the, the head of the Antichrist. But that doesn't impact our salvation. When we get to 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to spend some time talking about artificial intelligence. And the more I am learning about artificial intelligence the more I am thinking that it's going to be used by the Antichrist, whomever that may be, maybe a world government for all we know, to govern people because people aren't thinking anymore. We'll talk more about that when we get to Second Peter chapter 2. But that doesn't impact who we are in Christ Jesus. You've put on the new self that's being renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. 
God does not intend for us to know most of his sovereign will. Deuteronomy, Moses, closing out the book of Deuteronomy, writes this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. I need to know them, preacher. No, you don't. I don't either. If we knew them, we would not live by faith. And we are required, again, the will of God is that you walk by faith. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. What's the revealed will of God? His will of command. They belong to us. We can sink our teeth into them. We can meditate on them. We can commit them to memory. This is what God wants us to know. Sin causes us to want to know the sovereign will of God. It's exactly what happened to Lucifer. I want to be like the sovereign God. Sin causes that. God's will of decree is not revealed in a crystal ball. This would not require any transformation or obedience. The Old Testament refers to this as divination or sorcery. And it's strictly forbidden in Scripture. Next slide. Deuteronomy 18. Again, Moses. Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells. He goes on. You can read a number of different passages in the Old Testament. It refers also to astrology. Or who is a medium or necromancer, those that worship the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. The nations you will dispossess, the nations that I drive out before you, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. Do we want that for our nation? Do you want that for your children? No. God says, I'm going to take them and remove them because these people will impact you. Now, what happened obviously was they didn't remove all of them as they should, and they began to be idolaters. very similar to where we are today. Now, this is found in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Paul wrote this to Timothy. For the time will come when people will not adhere to sound doctrine and instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say with what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We are fastly, and we have for a number of years now, but we're fastly becoming a pagan society yet again because we're turning aside to myths. We know that Romans 12 is God's will of command. He says, by testing you may discern. So God is testing us. We can determine 
We can be filled with the Spirit. We can follow, and it implies that we should approve of God's will and obey it. Not look for wiggle room. We have to discern God's revealed will of what we ought to do. Next slide. Give you these three quickly. There are three principles of knowing and doing the revealed will of God's command. This applies not only for Romans 12, it applies for First Peter 2 and the others that we've read a couple of weeks ago. Number one, God's will of command is revealed with final, decisive authority only here. It's not in the stars. It's not in the congresses. It's not in the waves. It's not in the tea leaves. It's whatever. It's here. Now, this is a finite book given to us by an infinite God. So if it's finite, there's a lot of other stuff that God does not want us to know. But what he does want us to know is here. We don't need to know it. Without the renewed mind, we distort Scripture. We don't like the radical commands of the Scripture for self-denial. I'm not being free. If I deny self, I'm not free. The radical commands of loving the brotherhood, of living a pure life, and to be satisfied in Christ alone. Paul did write to Timothy, all Scripture is exhaled by God in order that we be competent God wants you to be competent, intelligent, wise, filled with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. Equipped for good works. Secondly, God's will of command applies biblical truths to new situations that may or may not be explicitly addressed in the Bible. Now, this is lost on a lot of people. Hear me clearly. The Scripture... Didn't tell me to marry Robbie. I was a believer. She was a believer. Those were the two things necessary to begin with. She and I fell in love. We were in the house of the living God. We were attempting according to the word to be filled with the spirit in order that we live and walk according to the word. And so we freely chose each other. The Bible's not going to tell you who to marry. It's going to give you some principles, but you're not going to see it written in the stars. You need to be obedient. It's not going to tell you what kind of car to drive. 
Not going to tell you whether or not to buy a house or lease a house. Lease an apartment. Not going to tell you that. It is going to tell you to move out of your mom and dad's house. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. But you get an adult, move out of your mom and dad's house. Good for Landon and Olivia. You're out of your mom and dad's house, right? Lawson and Matthew, out of your mom and dad's house. Get out. That's not there either, but that didn't cost you anything. How to purchase a home? Where are you going on vacation? Obviously, you need to be careful where you go, but... And all these other things. Thousands of decisions are not found here. Why? Because God is giving us the liberty to be competent and equipped for good works. A renewed mind shaped and piloted by the revealed word of God, revealed will of God rather from the Bible, enables us to assess the relevant factors with a mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, Philippians chapter 2, and discern what God calls us to do. Now, sometimes it takes time. I need to know today. No, you don't. Sometimes it requires meditation. Sometimes it requires counsel. And be sure you get counsel from men and women that know Jesus Christ. And you can look at their lifestyle and determine that. Next slide. We're to pray, we'll labor for a renewed mind discern how to apply the word and we are to do this rather than ask God, God give me some revelation. No. He's not going to do it first of all and you're wasting your time. Do what the word says. Divination in the Old Testament, the reason that, that the Lord was opposed to it then and now is because it doesn't require any transformation. When he saves us he gives us renewed minds. It's a new way of thinking and judging. It's not just information. God wants to transform, to sanctify, to free us by his truth in his revealed word. The third thing, God's will of command impacts the majority of living where there is no conscious reflection before we act. Do you know to realize that most of our behavior is, is um, not premeditated you have a conversation with me or I have the conversation with you I don't quite often think about what I'm going to ask or say it's just something that's in response to what you ask or say it's not premeditated what you're seeing here this morning is premeditated it took time to study and put it together Most of our thoughts, most of our attitudes and actions are spontaneous. If we want them to be in accord with the Word of God, we need to follow the will. Jesus said, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Can't change that. I tell you, he said, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. This comes back to premeditation. Next slide. But God's will covers these actions as well. How do you keep from saying things that you shouldn't say? Have a renewed mind and heart. You stick your foot in your mouth every once in a while? I know I do. Why? I'm unprepared. Perhaps I haven't been in the Word as I should. Unprepared. Unpremeditated. God's will covers the thoughts of don't be angry. Unless you're angry at sin. Don't be prideful. Don't be covetous. Don't be anxious. Don't be jealous. Don't be envious. Yeah, they'll cover too. The will of God that we not be these things. But more often than not, we are. None of these actions are premeditated. Anger, pride, covetousness, anxiety, jealousy, envy, all rise from the heart with no conscious reflection or intention. That's why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 12. Matthew 27, Pilate understood this, and he was pagan. When they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And Matthew says, For he, Pilate, knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Commentary on this particular passage, H.B. Sweat wrote this, He detected under their disguise the vulgar vice of envy. Envy is a reverse, sin of, a reverse side of a sin called vanity. And no one is ever envious of others who's not first proud of themselves. Unpremeditated actions. That's why Jesus said what he said. Every idle word you're going to give an account for. I'm going to do it. It's going to be a long day when I'm there. All kinds of people said... It will. It's going to be a long day when I'm there. Every idle word. God wants us to be free and to submit in our Christ-earned freedom. Our minds and hearts require transformation by Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the question this morning as we close this out is, is your mind and heart has it been transformed? Don't take this as information and just leave here this morning and say, well, you know, the preacher, first of all, he went too long. Yeah? That's unpremeditated. This applies to every person under the sound of my voice.
God wants you to be free. God wants you to be transformed. Let's close this out. Next slide. Some, and I, you probably say most, think of the will of God as restrictive or pessimistic. As I opened this morning, he's a cosmic killjoy. He, he doesn't want you, he just doesn't want me to have any fun. As Sawyer said when he was about three years old, my mama won't let me do anything. And so we rebel. We follow myths. That's what Adam and Eve did. God did not say, Lucifer said. And they followed the myth. Hook, line, and sinker. Tom Schreiner, a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary, said this. God is working out his wise purposes. And thus we have massive reasons for hope. One of the greatest temptations is to give in to despair and discouragement. Oh, my word. We live in the greatest nation on earth and almost everyone that you meet. You know, it's okay to turn the TV off sometime, not watch news. To give in to despair and discouragement. Shrana, who I'm using... His commentary, I used it on Romans and also in 1 Peter. He says, it shows us the splendor and majesty of God and the saving work of Christ. It teaches us that our love for one another can only come from the gospel of Christ. Love the brotherhood can only come from the gospel. No other ideology will truly bring people together. We only find unity in the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. Believers do not enjoy unrestricted freedom. No one does, by the way. The only purely free entity in, outside of this universe is God, not you and I. True liberty, according to the New Testament, means that there is freedom to do what is right. And only those who are slaves of God are genuinely free. Consider the freedoms of believers and their subservience ultimately to God alone. It is evident that gov governments do not enjoy carte blanche authority. If governments prescribe what is evil or demand that believers, you see the list and I'll read the rest of it, or demand that believers... Governments prescribe what is evil or demand that believers refuse to worship God, then believers as slaves of God must refuse to obey. Because our allegiance, our subservience, our souls have been sold to the one who sold his soul for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your will. Teach us, Lord, to obey what is written, what we know. 
We do pray, Father, for any this morning that does not know you as Savior. We pray that you would move in their hearts to bring them to a point to where they understand that they, in order to live this way, you have to have a renewed mind and heart. And for Christians, in order to be careful in the areas where we stumble or indeed stick our feet in our mouth with unpremeditated actions, teach us that these two, every idle word, we will give an account of. We thank you for that in spite of this, you love us. And we pray that you would move in this service for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we will close this morning with a singing a verse from an invitation hymn. <clears throat> Mark Twain, I believe, said that uh, it wasn't the things in the Bible that he didn't know that made him afraid. It was the things he did. So that applies to all of us. If you're here today as a child of God and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, his desire is to transform your heart and mind. He's going to make you another person, a new person in Christ. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're going to sing a verse, give you an opportunity. If you don't know the Lord, make your way out of the pew this morning. We can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may have been preparing you, probably has been preparing you for many, many uh, years or months or days. If you're here today... As a child of God, God's leading you into the fellowship of this church, and we'll celebrate believers' baptism next Sunday. We encourage you to come, join, be with us, or perhaps unite with statement of faith, transfer of letter. As a child of God, very, very clear. This is what God wants. This is his desire. This is his will of command. And so we pray that the Spirit of God has brought the, made these real to you this morning. What number, Brother Mike? 416. 416. If the Lord's called, I want you to come as we stand.